here, for this is the word of the Lord. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Humility is hard to come by. We live in a world that is man-centered and self-centered. And the world thrives on self-sufficiency and self-reliance. We are taught that we come from Neanderthal cavemen whose only purpose is to conquer and to take dominion. So submission to anyone is not in our language. But when we come to the scriptures, we see something else being commanded. We are told in the scriptures that we are to submit to one another in Christ. And we are told, well, wives are told, to submit to their husbands And here this morning we see the obvious. We are to submit to God. In James, he calls us to just that. And his letter does not sit well with the natural man. You notice these days, the more you preach about submission to God, the more people turn away. The more people turn away from God and the true message of the scriptures. And churches around the nation have softened this message of submission. In order to keep people in the pews. In order to tickle the ears of some. After he has made a long Argument for the sake of exposing their sin, James now calls them and he calls us to do something. To sum it up, he calls us to repent. But he calls us to do something in light of God's grace. And it comes with a promise. This is a response to the grace of God. It is not just do, right? In light of God's grace in our lives, He calls us to do something because He gives us grace to humble us, but for what? There's an end to it. God gives us grace not just to save us, but also in order to live the Christian life. And what does the Christian life call us to? He he tells us what to do with that grace as it fills the life of the humble. And then he presents a promise here. This is important for us because oftentimes we do not know what to do with the grace that God has given to us. 
So he explains what humility looks like as we submit to God. Because that is what repentance is. Repentance is humble submission. He explains the constant call of the Christian. Specifically when referring to our sin that stills remains within us. And how we are to repent daily. All of our lives. So this is not just a call for a few bad Christians. But it is a call to all of us who claim the name of Christ. All of us have remaining sin within. Whatever that looks like. For these churches... Uh, They were involved in much infighting, quarreling. They were involved in misusing their tongue. They were reflecting the devil and his angels. They were submitting to the devil. So he begins by saying, don't submit to the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And this is a submission... That submits our will to God. It's it's not just caring for our needs. We're not just submitting to Him so He can care for us. But it is also submitting to Him as in what He wants us to do. And what He wants us to do, first, He addresses our sin. He calls us to repent and He gives us what that looks like. Now remember, go back in your minds and remember when you first believed, if you can remember. Remember when you first submitted to God. Remember the joy of salvation when we heard the gospel, that you are forgiven of your sin. Remember when you first believed and turned from your sin. This doesn't end in the Christian life. This is why we're called here every week to remember. And if you're a child or someone who hasn't believed yet, maybe today is the day that you first believe. But we see here, James speaks of three ways of repentance and ends with a promise. He tells us to go in the opposite direction. Purify ourselves. And then he calls us to grieve. Over our sin. But first. He calls us to go in the opposite direction. And that answers what is submission. What does it mean to submit to God's will? What does it look like? Well it means to place ourselves under God's rule. It means to be placed under God's lordship. Which would mean we would dethrone the Lord of this world in our lives, which is the devil. So first he says, go in the opposite direction that you are heading in. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is much talk of resistance these days. But usually it's resisting the wrong person. Usually they're talking about resisting God, resisting His will. 
But here we see some militant language. It is a language of force and severity in order to stand against the devil and to give him no opportunity. Paul calls us to be militant in our resistance. Especially when he calls us to put on the whole armor of God because God has prepared it for us. It is a divine resistance. This isn't a physical battle. It is divine. It is a spiritual resistance. This is not a strap up your own bootstrap type of resistance. But this resistance comes from the grace of God. The grace of God that He has given us to grow us in holiness. Because He has given us all that we need to resist. He has granted it to us at our disposal. We see it in a few ways. He has given us His Spirit. Who has given us the truth to fight against lies. He has given us His righteousness to fight against wickedness. He has given us His peace to fight against turmoil in our lives. He has given us His faith to fight against doubt. His salvation to fight against sin and death. And most importantly, He has given us His word to guide us in a dark world. This is all available to the children of God by the grace of God. Our Heavenly Father gives us the power to resist the devil and it says, He will flee. Similar to when He fled from Jesus when He tempted Him in the wilderness and failed. Now this doesn't mean He won't be back. For He tempts us in many ways. For the Christian today, there is much temptation out there. There is much temptation in here. Everywhere. We are hemmed in with temptation. He tempts us with riches and power, lust and greed. He tempts us to presume on God's grace, thinking that God's grace is license to live however way we please. But you see, What this text tells us is that Satan is limited in his power. He is limited. Like Martin Luther said, the devil is still God's devil. He is a dog on a leash. Yet he fools us to think that he has as much power as God. But he does not. He is powerful, and we shouldn't be fooling around with him. But not that powerful. The devil doesn't make us do anything. The primary purpose of his existence is to try to separate man from God. Like in the Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve did not resist him. There's the difference. And there was a breach in the covenant fellowship between God and man. This is why James says to go in the opposite direction. And he says, draw near to God, not the devil. Don't go near him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a command with a promise. 
And it doesn't mean that He wasn't always there with you. He's always with you. That's not the issue here. Here it is speaking of His favor, His blessings, His promises, the promises of His empowerment in your lives to empower you to resist. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you to empower you to resist the devil. This has been uttered by Old Testament prophets and it is for the sake of renewing our fellowship with God. It is for the Christian. Week in and week out, this is why we are called here in this place to draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. But how? How do we draw near to God? Notice when Adam and Eve... uh, was tempted to sin, they fled. They ran away. They hid themselves from God. That's what we naturally tend to do. We run away from God. Rather, when we fall into sin, we're called, just as Jesus called us to do when He walked this earth, to come to Him, to flee to Him in prayer. And He gives us grace and mercy in our time of need. This is the promise of God. He will not turn away anyone who comes to Him. This is why Jesus says, Whoever comes to Me does not hunger or thirst. And He says, I will never cast them out. What a wonderful picture it is of the prodigal son returning home and his father having compassion on him. He runs to Him. And embraces him while he was still far off in the distance, as the scripture says. See, the prodigal son only began to draw near, and God drew nearer still and quicker. He ran to him, just as God always welcomes back his children when they draw near to him. You're probably asking yourself, well, isn't God holy? How am I in all of my mess? How am I to draw near to God? He is holy. I can't go near Him. Well, it is only through Christ that we draw near. Only through the cross. This is what the cross was for. This is why the cross of Christ was so important. The death of one who is unblemished. His blood was spilled. Why? So that we may draw near to God. This is how we draw near. is via the sacrifice for our sins. So my question to you this morning is, are you in doubt of His goodness? Do you doubt Him? That you can't draw near to Him? You can't come to Him? Are you drawn to sensuality, to lust, to materialism, to slander, to pride? Or have you already fallen into these? It is never too late. As long as you're living, seek Him while He may be found. God has promised that if you resist the devil and go to Him, draw near in prayer of confession and repentance, He will bring relief. 
He will run to you and embrace you, of course, metaphorically speaking. He will draw near to you and give you his grace. Secondly, he tells us to purify ourselves because we must repent. That is the condition. In order to draw near to God, there must be radical repentance of the whole person, inward and outward. We must come with clean hands and a pure heart, as the psalmist says. Again, notice, he is not speaking to unbelievers here, though they must repent too. But he is speaking to believers. He is speaking to Christians who are already saved. This is what we do in corporate worship, isn't it? We're called to come with clean hands and a pure heart. And it is his brothers and Christians that he calls sinners and double-minded. It's ironic, isn't it? How we can be both saints and sinners at the same time. Here he speaks in the language of priestly purification before entering the Holy of Holies. For we are all a kingdom of priests who draw near as ministers of God. The cleansing of the hands and the purity of heart is to check ourselves before coming to the throne of grace. Both outward actions and our inward motives. The whole person, heart and hands in repentance toward God. As we approach in prayer, we are to lay it all out. Honestly, before the Lord. Confess and repent. And He will cleanse us from all sin. For we are called to approach God with a single devotion. Of a single mind. Not double-minded. Not a friend of the world with double devotion. With a double tongue. Saying one thing and believing something totally other as we see in many churches all around the world today so are we double minded are we like the Pharisees who clean the outside of the cup with moral goodness but inside full of greed and self indulgence you see for the inside of the cup is most important Because the inside of the cup is where you pour the water in. And the water that we drink from is the water of eternal life. This is why Paul says, he says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, that the Spirit of God dwells within us as temples. That's the promise he is speaking of. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. So let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We're called to cleanse the inside of the cup. To fight, to resist the devil. Come to God with clean hands and a pure heart. Pure in the sense that we are seeking God when we pray. We're seeking His face and not our own. And that's not all. Thirdly, we're called to grieve. We're called to mourn. A true sign of repentance is grief over our sin. 
It is a heartfelt sorrow over sin, not just having a guilty conscience. He, he gives us a command that to many of us may seem cruel. We live in a therapeutic culture today that is all about making you happy. Thankfully, that's not my call. It's all about your happiness. Whatever makes you happy. If leaving your family, divorcing your wife, and finding a new woman makes you happy, go and do it. If being a man no longer makes you happy, you can be a woman. It's whatever makes you happy. If you don't want a child, and you made a mistake, you can kill that child. It's whatever makes you happy. It's all about you and your feelings. Oh, for you to ever feel offended, that's a crime. They've made it illegal for people to be offended. It's like I heard last week someone say, you don't have the right to not be offended. At some point in your life, you will be offended by someone. Actually, it is your right to be offended, so go ahead and be offended. Because God is not politically correct. He does not submit to the political correction of our day. He actually says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That sounds awful. Why would God tell us to be wretched and mourn and weep? Let your laughter be turned to mourning. That doesn't sound too nice, does it? That doesn't fit into our culture of today. That says just put a smile on your face. Do whatever pleases you. Now on the flip side, is he saying that we are never to laugh or never to tell jokes or not to have joy and the Christian life is a life of gloom and doom? Is he saying that to laugh or to smile is to be pagan or an unbeliever? Is the Christian life a depressing life? Well, no. The Christian life is a life of joy. But this joy comes from God. It's not superficial. James is not speaking of the Christian life walking by the Spirit and seeking to obey God. He is speaking of the Christian life lived in a lifestyle of enjoying sin, which is oxymoronic. He is speaking to those who are living a life of disobedience and thinking that everything's okay when, it, when it's not. He is speaking of those who are laughing when there's nothing to laugh about and who have a false sense of joy that comes from our sin. Especially in light of the fact that God hates sin. They are laughing when they ought to be mourning. 
And notice on the flip side, lately we see a lot of people angry. But they're angry when they should be repenting. When they should be submitting to God. They're angry at God and His ways and His law. So James is speaking of when we don't see the depth of our own depravity. It is when we don't see our sin as God sees our sin. We are falling to the culture of today that has flipped everything on its head. This is a desensitizing that has happened in the human soul towards sin. There are churches around the country that are teaching us to be desensitized towards sin. Sin isn't all that bad anymore. Baptists say amen. I say amen to that. This is what he is speaking about. He is not saying we are never to laugh. Actually, we ought to be the happiest people in the world. What a joy it is to be forgiven in Christ. And knowing that forgiveness. Knowing that we can draw near at any time. We ought to be the happiest people on the planet. And the world ought to see that happiness and joy. But when it comes to our personal sins... We ought to be devastated in light of who God is. We ought to mourn and weep over our sin. When was the last time we actually wept? Now, as we look out into the world, we see much trouble. We we see much that we ought to weep over. We think of family and friends who do not receive Christ, who who are going in the opposite direction, who reject Christ. And we weep over their souls. We ought to weep. We think of our nation and the turmoil that it is under. We ought to weep over these things that are going on in our world. We ought to be dismayed. We see how sin is being legislated all over our country. And if you stand up to speak against sin, we, are thrown in, we might be thrown in prison soon. First, it's going to come economically. We're going to face economic oppression, just like the Jews did in the time of the Nazis. First, it's economic. Then it's physical. Then they throw you in jail. Then they kill you. We ought to weep over these things. We see it progressing before our very eyes. We see churches following movements that have nothing to do with Christianity. We think of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, which they don't stand for their name at all. Don't be fooled by the name. It has nothing to do with Black Lives Mattering. It has everything to do with socialism and the dismantling of the nuclear family. When they say the nuclear family, they're speaking of the Christian family. They're not speaking about white traditional families. They're speaking of Christian families. So the Christian is the target of both of those movements. We are the target. Let us not be fooled. That is not conspiracy theory. That is a fact. We are the targets. We ought to mourn over these things. That we have come to this place. But how often do we mourn and weep 
over our own personal sins. The world is laughing, or they're fighting, or they're angry. They're having a grand old time, fooled into thinking thinking that all is well as they ignore God's judgment and God's word. The world finds joy in sinning against God, and you cannot speak against it. If not, you will be ostracized. They find joy in sinning against God when they should be mourning. How many conversations have we heard where it goes, man, I I got totally wasted this last weekend. Whether it's in the barber shop or if you go to bars, I don't know if you do. Or I slept with so-and-so, or I did this, which was against the law. And laugh it off as if God is laughing with us, and as if God doesn't hate sin. But never mind the world, we do this when we laugh at our own sin, not in a humbling way. I, I laugh at my own foolishness all the time. I mean, we ought to laugh at our own foolishness. But laughing here, when I say laughing, it means the enjoyment of sin. Enjoying our sin. Finding joy in the act of sin. And when we do this, we are presuming on God's grace. And live as we want to. When we have a casual attitude towards sin. When we don't view our sin as God views it. And this joy and happiness that we find in it is false. It is superficial. How many people do you know have bouts of depression? And some of it's clinical and it is medical. But other other times, it's because they're never fulfilled. Because they have a superficial joy. And it's a joy finding Finding joy in their sin. It is surface level. It is what I call happiness in competition with others. Right? We see other people finding joy in sin. In fulfilling their own cravings. And they accumulate. And they have all this stuff. While ignoring God. And we say, I want to be happy like that guy. And we seek happiness in those things. We find joy in those things rather than in God. You see? And that's the problem. There's not, nothing wrong in having stuff. But if we don't have God, all that enjoyment is going to slip away. And it's going to lead into a deep and dark depression. Because we don't have God. We ought to be grieving over our own personal sin, as Paul says when the Corinthian church was found in grievous sexual sin. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? For it is better to mourn over our sin now. Rather than later on judgment day. In the presence of our Lord. And there will be joy after mourning over sin. Knowing that you are forgiven. For there is grace for those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. What a joy to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. But that joy will not be ours in this life. 
if we tolerate our personal sins or find joy in it. And what a joy it will be when our sin will be no more experientially. When all that blinds us will be taken away. When we will see Christ face to face. We will one day experience sinlessness in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine no more doubting, no more anger, no more lust, no more unforgiveness, no more bitterness, no more anger, no more sin. We can't even imagine that. Because sin is in, is in our lives every day. We have this fog before our eyes every day. But we can rest in the promises of God because He will do it. God will remove this veil. And this is the direction that He goes in when He sums up what He has said so far again by saying this. In light of our own sin... He has already said, submit yourselves to God. But now he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So what humble submission looks like is to turn our backs towards Satan, our face toward God, repent of our inward and outward sins, grieve and mourn over our sins. And all of this, sums up what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord. It is to come before God with nothing in our hands to offer Him, not even our repentance. We don't bring our repentance to God as if we're trying to earn something from Him. Because it's not just performance, but it is recognizing our own spiritual poverty that we cannot do do it on our own. That's why we need... We need to be humbled. It is seeing our sin for what it truly is and seeing how much we truly lack in righteousness. It is saying to God, I can't live a truly Christian life without you. We can't do this on our own. Many of us try and fail and many of us believe we are successful when we are really blinded by sin. This is total submission to God with our entire lives. And for this, we need His grace. We need His grace. And here He has another promise. See all the promises riddled throughout the letter of James? It's not just about doing things, there are promises. He not only gives grace to the humble, but he will also one day exalt the humble. He will do it. Our exaltation will not come by our own efforts or through our own strength, but God will exalt us by his grace. We see this displayed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection and his exaltation to his throne as we confessed earlier. He humbled himself to the point of death and he was later exalted all in order that he may redeem his people. And in redeeming his people, they too will humble themselves before him and receive his grace and his 
exaltation. We have a share in Christ's exaltation. Imagine that. Imagine that. Undeservingly. We will one day be raised with him. This is the pattern found throughout the scripture as Jesus says repetitively. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now the the difference between our humbling and Christ is that we humble ourselves as sinners. As the tax, tax collector before God beating our chest. Confessing our sinfulness and our need of forgiveness and mercy from the hand of God. That's the difference. Have you come before God acknowledging your own neediness? Not in our own power, not in our own strength, but in weakness. Come before God and confess that you too are a sinner. Well, there is a promise. Just as the tax collector walked away and he was justified, we too, when we come to God confessing our need of Him and our sins, we will be forgiven. And one day, we will be glorified and we will be exalted to sit with Christ in glory. Amen. Let us pray.